My dear brothers and sisters, I bring the greetings from the beautiful islands of Hawaii, saints and the missionaries. I say to you, aloha. aloha. Today, I'd like to ask the question to you brothers. My dear brothers, are we treating our wives as a daughter of God? Are you treating your wife as a daughter of God? The words has a special feeling. Even as you say it, you feel our reverence. Then you may say, oh, Brother Kikuchi, of course I am. But my next question is, how much do you treat and honor her as a daughter of God? Let's stop and thank your lovely companion. As she was entrusted to you by Heavenly Father, as a special daughter of God. I believe that in this lifetime, the closest person or neighbor that you can be in your lifetime, the sweet wife, she is your sweetheart, she is your love, she is your best friend, she is your lover, and she is a daughter of God. The Lord's teaching is uh, to the lawyers very clearly. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Yesterday, our beloved prophet, President Ezra Taft Benson, said, quote, Everything we do in our lives we must place the first thing first. Thou shalt love thy God. Lord thy God. Quote, close quote. The second is also like the first. The Lord said, love thy neighbor as thyself. Brothers, among all the children of our Father in heaven, don't you think your wife is the closest neighbor that you can be? The Lord said, Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart. Truly, the marriage is ordained of God. Marriage is honorable in all. When the Lord told Abraham to offer the only son Isaac on the Mount Moriah, he took Isaac, two servants and donkeys, and built an altar. On the way, Isaac's son asked, Daddy, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Though father Abraham knew that Isaac was the one, he said, my son, God will provide. When the time came, Abraham willing to offer Isaac, but Isaac didn't run away. Brothers and sisters, in our marriage, marriages, we need both commitment of Abraham and also the spirit of Isaac. At the time of his undurable agony, the Savior looked down on his mother Mary and introduced to John, to her, saying, Woman, behold thy son. And to John he said, Behold thy mother. The scripture records that John took her onto his own home. Are we worthy to be entrusted by the Lord to take care of one of our Heavenly Father's daughter? 
the Savior must have a special feeling towards the women of the world. Because the first person that saw the resurrected Lord was a woman, Mary Magdalene. Oh, how special it was. May I share today a story of a person who lived in such a way in an eternal loving companionship in Hawaii. 1850, Brigham Young sent 10 missionaries to the island of Hawaii. Without understanding their language and culture, it was extremely difficult for the missionaries. Eventually, they all became discouraged, including a mission president. They became so discouraged that five of the ten left to go home. The youngest of these missionaries, Elder George Q. Cannon, was determined to stay. He went to the Lord in prayer. The Lord inspired him to go to Maui, Lahaina. He did so. As he approached his town, two ladies went in, screaming into the nearby house, brought, brought, brought out a local gentleman. The previous night, this man had had a dream. A messenger of God is coming to his town, that he must feed him. Elder Cannon was invited to stay and preach in the home of this man, Jonathan H. Napella, who was a very well-educated man and the magistrate of this district. Subsequently, the Elder Cannon and Jonathan Napella became very close friends like Alma and Amalek in the Book of Mormon. Because of the guiding hand of God and Brother Napella's great help, along with the hospitality and the kindness of the Hawaiian saints, the missionary work began to excel in Hawaii. The foundation was laid. Twenty years later, 1873, the wife, Kitty, of this great man, Jonathan Napella, contracted the leprosy. She was a beautiful and noble woman in the early days of church in Hawaii. The modern medical technology knowledge has advanced so that this disease is no longer fatal. But at the time, there was no cure this dreadful disease. In order to prevent the spreading of this disease, once you contracted it, you were forced to live on one of the seashores in the leper colony in Molokai. The lepers were taken there by boat. The sailors were so afraid of this disease and they pushed the saints into the sea, forcing them to swim the shore because his wife had to go to Kalapapa near colony, leper colony. Jonathan wanted it to go. He took her hand, and they went there together. Together. Why would he do this? Because he loves her so much. He knew that the life is eternal, and the love is eternal. Even though the days of sickness and health, how much do I love my wife? 
Do I love her as a daughter of God, like a Jonathan? Would I be willing to go to a place like that to go with her? Would you be willing to demonstrate your pure love like a Jonathan? Brethren, are we honoring our companions? Are we caring? Are we thoughtful? We must. We must because God has joined us together. History records that this violent and giant man of God worked in the leper colony, fought for the government assistance, for the lepers to those who were there and more comfortable place to live. He was a giant in the pure love of Christ, his own people. Oh, I can almost hear the words of Paul to Corinthians, and he said, Though I speak with the tongues of angel and have not charity, I have become as a sounding breath of a twinkling symbol. This good brother later on contracted the same disease and died. And even before his wife passed away, and she followed him two years later, Husbands of the world, do you love your wife as a daughter of God? Oh, husbands, love your wives as a daughter of God. Even the Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. I know that God lives. This is his church. I know that Savior lives. I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God and restored this church. I know that our beloved prophet, even the present Ezra Taft Benson, is the living oracle of God, an example to us. And the Book of Mormon is true. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We have just heard from Elder Joseph B. Worthlin of the Council of the Twelve Apostles. We'd like to express our sincere appreciation for all who have provided the music for this great conference to the Mormon Youth Chorus, the Ricks College Centennial Choir, Ogden and Mount Ogden Region Men's Choir and Tabernacle Choir, and to their conductors and organists. We thank our city officials for the cooperation given this conference the Relief Society and Church Health Unit nurses who have been on hand to render service, and the ushers and interpreters. We express appreciation to the local and national press representatives for the coverage given to the conference and to the owners and managers of the many radio and television stations and cable systems who have given time and facilities to carry sessions of this conference in many countries. President Benson has suggested that I bear my testimony to you at this time, and I am pleased to again express my witness that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that this work is true, and that happiness comes through serving our Heavenly Father and serving our fellow man. If from this conference we can gain a new feeling 
of closeness to the Savior and a testimony of His divine mission. And on this Easter Sunday, if we can, renewed with the spirit of the resurrection, go forward in looking after His sheep and our family responsibilities and the pursuit of our Church duties in a way which will be pleasing to our Heavenly Father, we ourselves will be abundantly blessed. God bless you, my brothers and sisters. In all of your incomings and outgoings, may you have peace in your hearts, may you have tranquility in your homes, and may you have the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ in your souls. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. President Benson is feeling a bit weary after having attended and participated in the many sessions of the conference and therefore has asked that President Gordon B. Hinckley read the message which President Benson has prepared for us. I might mention that after President Hinckley has read this message, the Tabernacle Choir will sing, Abide With Me. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Gardner H. Russell of the First Quorum of the Seventy, and this conference will then stand adjourned for six months. My beloved brethren and sisters, I pray for that same spirit that we've enjoyed so much during this most beautiful and inspirational conference. Early in his mortal ministry, the Savior soon had a mul multitude of disciples drawn to him by the power of his presence and the spirit of his message. From among these disciples, he chose twelve to be his special witnesses. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Clearly Jesus had chosen them, he said. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. These twelve were common men from various walks of life. The Savior selected them because he could see far beyond their earthly appearance and look into their hearts, recognizing their potential. After the Savior called Peter, Andrew, and Philip, Philip introduced Jesus to Nathaniel, who some scholars believe to be Bartholomew, the apostle. Philip said to Nathaniel, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In this statement, Philip testified that Jesus is the Messiah. Nathaniel wondered whether any good thing could come out of Nazareth, indicating the relatively bad reputation of Nazareth in those days. Philip asked, to see, uh, Philip asked him to come and see. This is the perfect answer to all who seek to know the truth about Christ. Impartial investigators are converted when they come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he exclaimed of Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. At that moment, Nathanael recognized that Jesus could see into his heart and asked in surprise, Whence knowest thou me? The Savior's reply demonstrated an even greater power of perception. He told Nathanael that before Philip had called him to come and see, Jesus saw him under a fig tree. Nathanael apparently had undergone some surpassing spiritual experience while praying or meditating or worshiping under a fig tree. 
The Lord, though absent in body, had been present with Nathanael in spirit. Nathanael then recognized the Savior as the Christ and said, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Nathanael spoke without guile. The words came from his heart. They expressed a deep conviction of truth. He followed the Savior. To be without guile is to be free of deceit, cunning, hypocrisy, and dishonesty in thought or action. To beguile is to deceive or lead astray, as Lucifer beguiled Eve in the Garden of Eden. A person without guile is a person of innocence, honest intent, and pure motives, whose life reflects the simple practices of conforming his daily actions to principles of integrity. The psalmist wrote, and I quote, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit is no guile. And then admonished, Keep thy tongue from evil, and thy lips from speaking guile. In the New Testament we learn that the Savior was without guile, and that he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. In Latter-day Scriptures we read that the Lord called Edward Partridge to be, to a, to be bishop for the Church because his heart is pure before me, for he is like unto Nathaniel of old, in whom there is no guile. In another revelation to the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Lord said, My servant George Miller is without guile. He may be trusted because of the integrity of his heart and for the love which he has to my testimony. I, the Lord, love him. These passages of Scripture help me understand what the Lord could see in Nathaniel, Edward Partridge, and George Miller, and give me some insight into what he expects of the saints. I believe the Savior was seeking purity of soul in those he called to be his twelve apostles. When he spoke of being without guile, he referred to something far deeper than outward appearance. He was reaching into the soul to the very heart of righteousness. He was touching the key to goodness and to the Christ-like life. To be without guile is to be pure in heart, an essential virtue of those who would be counted among true followers of Christ. He taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He revealed to the Prophet Joseph Smith that Zion is the pure in heart and that a house is to be built in Zion in which the pure in heart shall see God. If we are without guile, we are honest, true, and righteous. All of these are attributes of deity and are required of the saints. Those who are honest are fair and truthful in their speech, straightforward in their dealings, free of deceit and above stealing, misrepresentation, or any other fraudulent action. Honesty is of God and dishonesty of the devil. The devil was a liar from the beginning. Dishonest people are liars, regardless of whether the, the untruth is small or large. Any thought conveyed that is untrue and designed to deceive is a lie. Righteousness is living a life that is in harmony with the laws, principles, and ordinances of the gospel. As parents know, little children are by their nature without guile. They speak the thoughts of their minds without reservation or hesitance. We have learned as, as parents when they embarrass us at times. They do not deceive. 
They set an example of being without guile. The Savior taught of this attribute of little children when his disciples asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. On another occasion he referred again to the purity of children. Then were brought unto him little children, that he should put, it, put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer, little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. To the Nephites the Savior said, and I quote, Ye must repent and be baptized in my name, and become as a little child, or ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. He commanded that their little children should be brought. So they brought their little children and set them down upon the ground. And Jesus stood in the midst, and the multitude gave way till they had all been brought unto him. He took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. And angels did minister unto them. End of quote. What a great responsibility rests with parents to be certain they do do, that they do nothing to alter or destroy the guileless innocence of their little ones. I believe the necessity for the members of the Church to be without guile may be more urgent now than at any other time because many in the world apparently do not understand the importance of this virtue or are indifferent to it. We see and hear reports of fraud and deception in all levels of our society. A few citizens of some nations betray their country by exchanging sensitive information for money, information they have stolen or with which they have been entrusted. Stock market con artists have stolen millions of dollars from those who trusted them by deception and by false promises. The entertainment industry seems to have lost in large measure the concept of moral values. Employees falsify expense accounts. These few examples of guile illustrate how pervasive it is. A far greater concern than the outward acts of guile are the inner feelings and the attitudes that motivate them. Fraud and deception appear to be increasingly acceptable. The only wrongdoing seems to be in being caught. The objective often is to get gain or to profit, regardless of the injury, loss, or damage to others. This attitude is totally contrary to the principles of the gospel. It hinders or thwarts the spiritual progress of anyone afflicted by it. The practice of guile prevents the Holy Ghost from prompting, guiding, and instructing us, leaving us ever more susceptible to the buffetings of Satan. When we break the commandments, we close ourselves to God's influence and open ourselves to Satan's influence. If we practice guile in small matters, we soon can find ourselves entangled in an ever-increasing, unending spiral because each lie or other deception often requires a larger one to cover the first. Moreover, the practice of guile often leads to hypocrisy, which is the false pretense of virtue or righteousness and pretending to be something that we are not. If we know what is right and profess to live by that knowledge, but in fact do not, 
We are hypocrites. The Savior denounced hypocrites in unmistakable language. He declared, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of all uncleanness. Even so, even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. To the prophet Joseph Smith the Lord revealed, Woe unto them that are deceivers and hypocrites, for thus saith the Lord, I will bring them to judgment. The hypocrites shall be detected and shall be cut off. And woe unto them who are cut off from my church, for the same are overcome by the world. What are the Latter-day Saints to do? The answer is plain. The saints are to be absolutely without guile in every respect of their lives, in their homes and families, church callings, employment, and professions, all business dealings, and especially in the private and personal parts of their own lives, into which only they and the Lord see. I suggest that we look into our hearts and see whether our motives and actions are pure and above reproach, and to see whether we are free of deceit and fraud. Perhaps we can ask ourselves a few questions. Are we totally free of guile in our conversations and associations with our spouses and children, so they always know what to expect and always have unquestioning trust and confidence in us? Are we forthright in our interviews with our bishops and other priesthood leaders? Are we true to ourselves, our classmates, and our teachers in our schoolwork, even if a little cheating might improve our grades? Do we do more work than our employers expect or require? And are, and are we always alert for ways to do our work better? Do we pay our employees fairly for their labors? Do we file an accurate tax return? Are we scrupulous in all business transactions to the extent that our associates always know they are being treated fairly and would feel secure if they had no contract? Are we satisfied with our personal standards of integrity, morality, and honesty? Can we say of ourselves, as Jesus said of Nazareth, that we are without guile? Some may think the idea of a society without guile is preposterous in this day. If so, it is because the power of Satan has over the hearts of men. With the Lord's help, the saints can be without guile. Being honest and fair helps rather than hinder success and prosperity. One man of my acquaintance was in a very competitive business for 36 years. He always gave full value and service, quality, and quantity. He paid every debt in full. He never sued anyone and never was sued during those years. During a, a recent visit to the land of Chile, we visited people who were without guile, almost to the point of possessing the naive innocence of little children. We were humbled and refreshed to be among them. They strengthened our faith in mankind and our hope for the future. Yes, the saints can be free of guile and must be prepared for the Savior's second coming. The saints can provide a leavening influence and can demonstrate the value of guileless living. As we develop this divine attribute, we can become a shining light to the world. Certainly we can teach the principles of the gospel and bless the families of the earth by following the perfect example of the Savior as one who is without guile. 
Visualize in your mind a society in which all are pure in heart and completely free of deceit and dishonesty. Can you imagine a total absence of contention and disputes with no one ever attempting to deceive another? How would life be if we always were certain without question that what others represent to us is true? Theft would be unknown. We would have little use for jails or prisons, and litigation would be rare. The greatest blessing that would come to a society without guile is the individual, personal inner peace that comes to those who know they are doing right and know their lives are acceptable to the Lord. A society without guile is possible. I cite two examples from the scriptures. The first is the city of holiness, even Zion, a city in which the inhabitants were pure in heart and dwelt in righteousness. In fact, Zion is the name given by the Lord to his saints. That city, referred to as the city of Enoch, was taken up into heaven. The second example is the society of the Nephites that lasted for about 200 years after the resurrected Lord visited and taught them. The following words of inspiration from the Book of Mormon describe this society. There were no contentions and disputations among them, and every man did deal justly with another. And there were no endings or nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murders, nor any matter of lasciviousness. And surely there could not be a happier people. There were no robbers, no murderers, but they were in one, the children of Christ, and heirs to the kingdom of God. And how blessed were they! For the Lord did bless them in all their doings, yea, even they were blessed and prospered." Unquote. These are examples of the goal of perfection that we should strive for, even though we know that we must perfect our lives grace upon grace and line upon line. I look to President Ezra Taft Benson as one whose life of service exemplifies the virtue of being without guile. In closing, I add my testimony at this Easter season to the testimonies of my brethren that the Atonement and Resurrection are real. I am grateful for the blessing it provides for, of immortality for all and for the possibility of eternal life it offers those who are faithful. I testify to you that our Heavenly Father lives and that He is the Father of our spirits. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He stands at the head of this Church. Joseph Smith was the prophet of God who, through whom the gospel of Jesus Christ was restored in these the latter days. President Ezra Taft Benson is the Lord's prophet today. He directs this Church by revelation. I bear this testimony humbly in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Holly loved the towering pine tree in front of her home. Its branches shaded her favorite place to play. The day of the accident, there were three younger children listening to Holly read under the tree. Suddenly, in her mind, something whispered to her. Holly's heart started to thump as the command echoed in her head, Move! She responded at once. 
Scrambling to her feet, she shouted to the children to run. She grabbed the smallest one, and the rest followed. The children thought it was a game until they heard a terrible crash. A driver had lost control of his car and hit the big pine tree where the children had been reading only minutes before. They would have been badly hurt if they hadn't moved. Some of the children were so frightened that they started to cry, but not Holly. She was thinking about the small voice she had heard in her mind and heart that told her to move. She knew that the warning had come to her from the Holy Ghost. The gift that she had received from Heavenly Father after she was baptized and confirmed had helped her, just as she was promised. Now, there are many Hollies among us, children who have been taught to be sensitive to the Spirit. Who are these children? Our beloved President Benson told us not long ago, God has saved for the final inning some of His strongest and most valiant children who will bear off the kingdom triumphantly. They are all sons and daughters of God, each with a special mission to perform. Their self-esteem grows as they learn who they truly are. But many of our children today are learning under less-than-ideal circumstances. Even in elementary school, some of the children are confronted with drugs, alcohol, profane language, and even immorality among their classmates. In many cases, family members are involved in so many activities away from home that there is no time for parents and children to develop meaningful relationships with one another. Fewer families are praying together and eating their meals together. Fewer fathers are spending time with their children, and more mothers are too tired at the end of the day to share an hour of reading or visiting with their children. Time that could be spent with family members is often spent watching television. By the age of 18, a child has typically spent more time in front of the television set than in school. In this kind of an environment, we must take time to teach the children about important things of life, about Heavenly Father, the Savior, and the Holy Ghost. We must teach them about repentance, baptism, honesty, and doing good to others. Now you might say, I'm not a parent. I don't teach children. Actually, we are all teachers of children. Parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, priesthood leaders, ward members, neighbors. Children are always watching and learning. We teach them through our behavior as well as what we say. They watch how we treat each other. They listen to the voices of their parents and to the voices at Church. Unfortunately, they also listen to voices on television elsewhere, which sometimes teach values contrary to gospel principles. We must teach them in an early age to listen to the right voices, like Holly did. Over the years, I have learned certain truths about children I would like to share with you. First, children want to be taught. This was brought home to me when I was visiting a primary in Bolivia. I had planned to visit an older class when three little girls tugged at my sleeve. 
They'd been to their classroom, but they came back because there was no teacher there. Please, will you teach us? they asked. We need a teacher. This was one of the sweetest teaching experiences I have ever had because those children were thirsty for gospel truths. Second, children understand quiet whisperings of the Spirit, like Holly understood. Third, as children learn, they can have a great influence for good. One young girl was taught a lesson about temples and eternal families. She went home and asked her father what would happen to her because her family wasn't sealed. Would she be given to another family? The faith of this tender soul touched her father and moved him to action. Within a year, that family was sealed in the temple. Fourth, parents are commanded to teach their children gospel principles. In the 68th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord instructs parents to teach their children the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. The Savior also teaches parents something more, that they should be as teachable as their children. He said, Teach parents that they must repent and be baptized and humble themselves as their little children, and they shall be saved with their little children. Fifth, Gospel truths make a difference in the lives of children. I've seen countless examples of children who have been taught gospel principles. When they learn these truths, they build a reservoir of strength to draw from throughout their lives. Let me share two examples with you. Eight-year-old Annie spent a night at her friend's house. When they finally settled down, their conversation turned to serious things. Were the scriptures true? They each asked Heavenly Father in their prayers and felt a strong witness from the Spirit that, yes, the scriptures are true. The next day, Annie told her mother about that witness of the Spirit and made a commitment to start regular scripture study. Now, like most 11-year-old boys, Stephen loved basketball. One afternoon, he went with his friends to watch a game on television. Thirty minutes later, he returned home. His mother was surprised because she knew the game wasn't over. When she questioned Stephen, he said the boys had decided to watch a different program. But the program made him feel dark inside. The feeling Stephen had helped him recognize he was in a setting where the Spirit could not be present and he was too uncomfortable to stay. Although it's our responsibility to teach the children, they often teach us. I shall be eternally grateful for my primary experience and for all that children have taught me. I'm also grateful for loving parents and dedicated primary leaders including those who have served by my side, who faithfully teach eternal principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ to our children. May each of us recognize the importance of teaching children. On this beautiful Easter Sunday, I bear witness that Jesus Christ lived and died for us and that he lives again. He is my Savior, my example, 
my friend, and I love him. I pledge my continued devotion and service to him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.